This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. On July 25, 1981, the whole world was watching Kirikiriroa Hamilton when hundreds of anti-racist protesters of the South African Springbok Tour stormed Rugby Stadium just before kick-off. That, alongside the threat of a light plane stolen in Taupo, which I only just found about that about this weekend, um, and thought to be destined to Hamilton, culminated in the game being called off and much celebration after. The value of the solidarity shown by protesters for those in particular in apartheid South Africa cannot be understated. Uh, to talk to us about that day and what we can learn from that, as we face similar issues today, is lifelong activist, organiser and chair of heart or halt all racist tours during the 80s and 90s, John Minto. Good morning. Yes, good morning, Kelly. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for coming in. Um, was that a about right in terms of a summary for the day in a, in a few yeah, sentences? Yeah, pretty about right, I think. Um, I think at, at the time we had no idea the impact of the of the protest here in Hamilton, but it, um, as time's gone on, we've, we've seen it in a clearer perspective, and South Africans are adamant that this was a um, not necessarily a turning point in the struggle, but it was certainly a, a huge morale boost to black South Africans, and it was similarly a very... Um, a very deep-seated blow to white South Africans and many white South Africans have said to me that this was the first time that that apartheid, what was happening in their own country, was put front and centre. I mean, they were always aware there, were the, there was a sort of background noise of people criticising South Africa, but the, the, the drama of what happened here in Hamilton 40 years ago um, put apartheid at the centre of white society and debate and I think it it didn't end apartheid, but it it brought it to a quicker end. So I think the yeah the events here were um, were quite momentous in that sense. Mm. And so, how did you find yourself as lead organizer in 1981 for that tour? I mean, how do you, I guess where did the activism start for you? Yeah, well, I I, I was really back in the mid 1970s that I was um, I'd sort of involved in things not in an organizing way, but just um, keeping an eye and keeping sort of abreast of issues when I was at university in uh, in Palmerston North and then when I, um, I moved back to Napier and got involved in the local anti-apartheid group there and I, one of the reasons I got involved was I think that New Zealand had this unique relationship with South Africa so you know the most important um, sporting link for South Africa was rugby and the most important mm. team they wanted to play with was the All Blacks and, vice, and, and the same thing from New Zealand's point of view. So there was this quite unique relationship between the countries. And I thought that if we could pressure those links, then we could have we could have a bigger impact than the size of our country. And I guess that leads into my next question was, um, what do you think it was that caused so many people on both sides to mobilise at that point for that tour? Yeah, well, I think there, there was a whole... A whole range of reasons, but the most important ones were the fact that New Zealand was going more and more out of kilter with what was happening internationally. I mean, the ANC had called for a boycott since 1957. Most countries of the world were very firmly boycotting South Africa. There were a few outliers. New Zealand, the UK and the US were, were typical outliers. And, um, and increasingly, we were more and more isolated. And what happened in 1976, five years earlier, 
kind of set the scene for that because we had, you know, um, the All Blacks playing in South Africa while black school children were being killed on the streets mm-hmm. of South Africa. I mean, 600 black school children were killed between June 16th and the end of the year when they 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 went on the rampage opposed to having to learn all of their lessons in the Afrikaans language. So, so um, you know, and then there was an attempt to get New Zealand kicked out of the Olympics because we were seen as the absolute outliers, entertaining white South Africans while blacks were being killed. And that failed, but when they failed to get New Zealand kicked out, 29 countries, African and um, Caribbean countries, walked out of the Olympics. So New Zealand was already an outlier internationally and there was a growing frustration within New Zealand about that. And um, we had a campaign going for two years before the 81 tour to to convince people that this, convince New Zealanders that we should join the boycott, that it was wrong for this tour to take place. So we did a lot of work beforehand. It didn't just sort of happen out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah and I think that's the thing that I've um, noticed in reading over the last week or so is this was a really long, a long game. For, oh, for absolutely, it was word. a long it game. It wasn't just it? 1981. It was so much uh, was before. What, Hart was established 1969? 1969, yeah. yeah. Hart was established in 1969. And before then... I mean, going back to the 1940s, um, there were protests against Springbok teams because of discrimination in South mm. Africa. In 1948, the I mean, there's all there was always discrimination um, against uh, black South Africans. But the election in 1948, a whites-only election, they voted to for the Afrikaner Nationalist Party to put into law these discrimination against blacks, and that provoked uh, protest around the world. But it was relatively muted until. The, the big mobilisations began after the ANC called, called for a boycott in the late 1950s. But here in Aotearoa, we weren't particularly squeaky clean with our own race no, relations. No. And so what part did, when did that come in? And when did those groups then, um, start to mobilise alongside you? Well, the late 1960s, there were groups that were um, like Ngatamatoa, and then the Polynesian Panthers. Um, there were several organisations of young Māori activists um, Māori University students, particularly in Auckland, but but Wellington as well, and they were saying they were challenging this notion that Māori were were happy in a kind of sort of second class status within New Zealand, and they were they were calling out the fact that New Zealand had had uh, New Zealand governments over the uh, over the you know well in fact over 100 years had not been honouring the Treaty of Waitangi and that Māori were no longer going to be sitting down and taking this passively. So they, that, that had begun, right, in the, in the 60s and was gaining momentum in the 70s. Then there was the, the land march mm. in the mid-1970s, which um, Finna Cooper was, became the symbol for. And um, so though that process had already started, and it was started by Māori. And then when we came to 1981 that challenge came home to the whole country. Mm. So Māori activists were saying, how can you be concerned about racism 6,000 miles away without looking in your own backyard? And it was a a valid challenge, absolutely. So the movement was challenged. In fact, the whole society was challenged. And I think that eight weeks of the Springboks in New Zealand created this um, uh, huge momentum for... um, or huge expectation that things were going to be different. They were good, they were bloody well going to be different, and so we had finally the politicians start to move. And in the mid 1980s, they made the Waitangi Tribunal, mm-hmm. or gave it the power to look at historic breaches of the treaty. Because when it was first set up, it could only look at future breaches of the treaty. 
And that treaty process, which is still going on, we've got the, the last major settlement to to be to be um, sorted yet, which is the Ngāpui settlement. Yeah. Um, but the um, yeah, so so that and that's been hugely valuable that process for for New Zealanders. So Pākehā New Zealanders have really had to come to grips with our history, with the commitments we made in, uh, in the in the in the treaty, what it means to be a bicultural country. You have to be bicultural before you can be multicultural. So we we have all of this all of this debate going on. We've got Māori wards now. You know, has been pretty well accepted. Um, as a as a mainstream issue, you know, Māori no longer have to rely on luck to get somebody into into represent them. Um, they they can have it as of right, and and these this is a process we're going through. So I think the tour helped to move New Zealand more quickly onto a more positive trajectory. Looking at racism mm. here, and we could talk about that a lot longer. We, unfortunately, we don't have the time. Mm. But this weekend's protest was also an opportunity, at least locally, to draw attention to Palestine. Absolutely. So can you explain why there's such a strong feeling of solidarity here for what is happening there? Yeah, well, well, South Africans, you know, black South Africans like Nelson Mandela and Bishop Tutu, um, if you like, the world, the world experts on on apartheid, they have said that it um, that what's happening in Palestine is apartheid. So they've been South Africans have said it all the way through. Palestinians have said it all the way through, and this year, twenty twenty one, is when the whole world is beginning to say it. So we've had the major human rights organisations this year. That's a group called Betzalem, the largest and most respected human rights group in, in Israel. They have called it out. They've said that this is what, what Israel is running is an apartheid regime of Jewish supremacy from the Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River. In other words, all of historic Palestine is under this apartheid regime run by Israel. And Israel, um, since 1967, has controlled and occupied the entire area yeah. of of um, historic Palestine, which they continue to today, and and they continue to every day to steal more land, bulldoze Palestinian houses, um, constrain the 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 movement, the freedoms of Palestinians, squeezing them into smaller and smaller bits of land. Um, it's it's an appalling situation, and it's been allowed to continue because the world has let it continue. The U.S. especially has given Israel free reign to do whatever it likes pretty much. And New Zealand is New Zealand is complicit because New Zealand will not speak out. Our, our Minister of Foreign Affairs, Nanaya Mahuta, has been a deep disappointment. She will not speak out. And uh, she's spoken out on, on human rights abuses in, in China, and, and quite rightly so, but she will not speak out and support the Palestinian people. Do you have a sense of why that is? I think it's because this government has moved much to, much further towards the US view of the world. Mm. We talk about having an independent foreign policy, but that's a, that's a joke, really. We're tied very tightly into the US view of the world, and we have very strong relations with, with Israel. We've got a whole pile of... Um, bilateral agreements with the Israeli government. We've got an embassy from Israel here in Wellington. Um, we've got all of these links, and the government's trying to promote trade with Israel and what have you. And in the meantime, for Palestinians, all we do, we vote at the United Nations once a year, and we do vote We do vote well at the United Nations. But a vote at the United Nations is not the kind of practical solidarity which Palestinians need. And so what can people listening do to help Palestinians today? Well, what we can do is we've got to pressure our government to take a stand on the side of Palestinians. And, uh, you know, look back to the 1970s and 80s. 
the New Zealand government's Labour or National did not stand um, squarely with black South Africans in the fight against apartheid and they won't stand squarely with Palestinians in the fight against apartheid in, in Israel. So it is, it's the public that has to push them to do the right thing. I mean, last week we had Ben and Jerry's, you know, the, the, yeah. um, the ice cream makers in, in America who did something far more practical than, than Nanaia Mahuta or this government has, could even dream of doing. They said, we are not going to sell ice cream in the occupied Palestinian territories. Got Simple, a lot of media coverage. It's practical, a massive protector. media coverage. And, and the hysteria that it's caused among the leadership of Israel shows just how important boycotts are because governments can keep dealing with Israel, but if the people of the world boycott Israel, then we can get change there very quickly. So while we look to our politicians for change, it's, the change comes from us yes. telling the politicians, and I think Absolutely. oftentimes we forget that and we think we they do. hold the power, but it is within us. Politicians never, ever lead, and this is really mm-hmm. important to understand, whether it's anti-apartheid, anti-nuclear, um, gay rights, um, LGBT rights, it is never the politicians who lead. The politicians will follow once they see public opinion change and then they'll pretend that they led the issue all the way through. Um, we'll let them that. think that. We, we, yeah. well, I'm happy for them to think it. I'm happy for that delusion. But the fact, what we have to do in the meantime is we've got to mobilise um, New Zealanders um, to support the Palestinians in their struggle. And part of that's the most important thing I'm doing as part of this tour. Yes, mm. we're remembering 1981. Yes, we can we can tick the box there and say, yeah, we did our bit for the struggle against apartheid in South Africa. But we're not doing our bit for Palestinians and their struggle. And uh, and part of, and my the major thing I'm doing on this national tour is to try and build that national movement. So where are you up to next? Well, New Plymouth next, because I'm following the <laughs> following oh, the route the, of the Springboks. You are too. So yeah. we're going um, date by date. So it's basically two meetings a week because they were playing two games a week. So it's yeah, it's New Plymouth and then Palmerston North and then Whanganui and then back down to Invercargill and working way up the South Island and then ending up in Auckland on the 12th of September, which is the which will be the 44th, I think, it is anniversary of Steve Biko's death in police custody in South Africa and. The, the date of the final game, which was um, another really traumatic mm. sort of event for, for New Zealand in terms of uh, this tour. Mm. What keeps you going? I mean, as, as we've mentioned, this is a, a long game. It is a long game. Um, but I've, I've only been really active in the Palestinian issue for, for two years since I retired. <laughs> and uh, I have to say, my wife's uh, pushed me, um, uh, you know, got me involved in this, and which is fantastic. And, and both of us are working together with a whole network of people around the country, and we're starting to make a real difference. Mm. And that's what keeps you going. That's what keeps me going, yeah. I Knowing we can make a difference. And, you know, I think it's um, we're doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. That is the right thing to do. Thank you so much for coming in. I do appreciate your time. It's a privilege to meet you as well. Kelly. Um, It's John Minto talking to us about the Springbok Tour uh, in Palestine. If you're not really sure what's going on there, John, do you have a website? People can get a really yeah, good summation simple. of the yeah. history. It's a There's a very simple website. Um, it's www.psna. That's Palestine Solidarity Network, Aotearoa, psna.nz. psna.nz. Uh, please do. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.